With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark, and with me today, I have a professor emeritus. That professor emeritus, I'm looking for your biography here because it is so extensive I couldn't possibly remember it, Dr. Tuddy. Uh, Dr. Leslie Tuddy is a professor at the, well, Professor Emerita with the Faculty of Social Work at the University of Calgary in California. That's where my mother, near where my mother was born, where she taught courses in clinical social work and research. And over the last 30 years, her research has focused on services for domestic violence, and that's included evaluations of shelter and post-shelter programs, support groups, treatment for adult and child victims of sexual abuse, and also groups for men who abuse their partners. And that's a whole different ballgame, and we're going to get into a discussion about that, I think, as we go along. But she has an extensive body of research. She, she sent me, I have to tell you, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm lifting like eight pages of her published works and everything. So this is a woman who knows what she's talking about. Welcome very much, Dr. Leslie Tuddy. Thank you very much. Just Can I make just one clarification? I'm from the University of Calgary in uh, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Yeah. I think you said California. I apologize. Um, no problem. I, and I said near, near where my mother was born. My mother was born and raised in Edmonton. Uh, well, oh, actually, okay. in Duke. And, uh, and I also have Canadian citizenship. And um, she used to, the story she used to tell me about Calgary from when she was a child is that they would go there camping. And uh, uh, as they would tent camp at Calgary for their vacation, a horse and wagon with fresh milk would come to all the tent sites and deliver fresh milk each morning. Isn't that cute? I mean, that's a great story. I just think that's wonderful. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, so I, I enjoy Calgary very much, and I've never made it to the Stampede, but I, I would like to someday. But yes, uh, well, anyway. Well, uh, actually, I'm, I'm planning to go back to Leduc. I was at Leduc last summer, and I was going to go back this summer and um, did have, I, who knows? I mean, you know, this year, the way it's going, who knows when I'll, I'll be back. But anyway, it's, it's, I'm, I'm happy up in that area. And I'm also very happy that you're joining us on the show. The reason I reached out to Dr. Tutty is because she had a, a research paper that I happened to find called Mothers Abused by Intimate Partners. Comparison of those with children placed by Child Protective Services and those without. Well, this really caught my attention because, as anybody knows who listens to the show, I'm all about what's happening in the court systems and what's happening with uh, children that are put in Child Protective Services and the conflict between the court system and what the court system is requiring and what Child Protective Services is requiring. But I never thought of it from the standpoint of, uh, you know, the actual uh, uh, abuse. Um, tell me, please, Dr. Tuddy, what, what is the study in a nutshell, and then we'll talk about more specifics. Can I, just, can I give you a bit of a broader look at the study? Because it it's much more yes. than this. Um, mm-hmm. The study was, is, uh, we conducted it in, in, across the three prairie provinces, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, and we were funded by the Social Sciences and Humanity Council of Canada, um, a special grant called a community uh, university uh, research um, affiliation, and those were projects where 
universities were very much involved with the communities in which they did the research. And so in total, we had 658 women across a four-year period that we talked to about every six months. And the original idea, we were looking at uh, how they were doing, how they were doing over time. And in fact, one of the things that we found is that uh, their mental health, uh, and of course, there's, there's potentially a stereotype when you talk about abused women. Um, it's, it's become a stereotype that many of them have mental health disorders. And one of the things that's notable about our study is that on average, these women did not have depression, anxiety, or trauma. They were actually doing pretty well. Most of them had left their abusive partners. Um, and so that, of course, may, <laughs> may well uh, explain why they were doing better. So we had this large study, and uh, we looked at mental health. We looked at how they were doing over time. We had a couple of other publications where they looked at how they were doing as mothers, and we looked at their protective strategies, what they were doing to protect their children, and uh, we also compared um, other data with with uh, a, another sample of normal mothers in Canada and found that there was basically no different, no difference. So in total. I think one of the one of the major outcomes of the study was just saying these women are abused by partners. Probably it's the partners that may have mental health problems. These women were doing not badly. Um, they had some challenges with parenting, but basically they were on average doing pretty well. So the study that caught your interest, um, I was I was working on another publication, and happened to notice that. 68 of these, of, of, of a total of 502 mothers who had children under 18, had their children taken into either temporary or permanent care by child welfare authorities. And that struck me as really high. And also, there's, there just wasn't a lot in the literature about that. We know that child welfare does intervene, and that under the, under the phrase, children exposed to domestic violence, in many states and provinces in the world, that's seen as, as a form of child abuse. Um, it's specifically seen as a form of emotional abuse. But whether or not these children were actually taken then from their mothers and, in fact, may have ended up in permanent care hasn't really been looked at a lot. So essentially what I did was what's called a secondary analysis, which is we hadn't... This wasn't the primary focus of the, of the study, to look at children taken into care, but we had such a large sample, it made sense to go back and see, were the mothers who had kids taken into care, were they different from the mothers who didn't have children taken into care? And that's kind of the essence of what we were looking at. Okay. Um, a couple questions. So the secondary analysis was based on your research uh, data from the um, uh, original study. Yes. What yes. was the sample size of the original study, approximately? It was about uh, 648 women. Okay, so substantial. And it was a longitudinal study, so how long did it go? How long did you follow these women? Uh, for about three and a half to four years. Um, the idea was that we would talk. We would talk to them every six months or so, and find, and also we had a, we had an extensive uh, number of questionnaires about mental health and uh, uh, mothering protective strategies. We asked them just a ton of inf We had a ton of questions about what services they'd used, 
uh, how they found the services, things like that, whether they were still with the abusive partner. So it's a pretty extensive um, project. Mm-hmm. I should actually mm-hmm. give credit to the uh, the primary investigator was uh, Dr. Jane Ursel from the University of Manitoba, and she was the one who managed the funds and uh, administered the the project. And I was a co um, co um, investigator on the study. So mm-hmm. since the study was and over, I've actually. Go ahead. And then the secondary analysis is, also has uh, Kendra Nixon as yes. uh, one of the authors. Yes. Yes. Um, Kendra. So, okay. Go ahead. Kendra is a, was also a, a part, a, a, one of the academics on the project and originally mm-hmm. was my doctoral student. Oh, okay. Well, um, so, okay, that lays some really good groundwork for us, and we could talk forever about the whole study, but I do want to focus at least to, be, uh, to begin with mm-hmm. on the secondary analysis, the yes. mental health. What were some of the questions you asked to determine mental health? I mean, were you, you already said that you were talking mostly about emotional health, but were you looking also at regular, um, at, at more uh, clinical diagnoses? How, explain, if you would, a little bit more about the actual questions Questionnaire about the mental health status. Yes. Well, we did actually talk to the women individually. So, and um, so there was always a research assistant that was talking to the woman. But when we were looking at mental health, we used some standardized measures um, of depression, uh, PTSD, and trauma, and also well-being. And uh, essentially, just so that every person got the same questions asked the same way the research assistant would read out the questions. So, again, I I can't remember the exact number, but the depression scale, I think, had uh, 20 items and the trauma scale had another 15 or so. So it was... And each of these scales did have a clinical cutoff score. So you could, um, on average, look and see whether the women were in the clinical ranges or not. And clinical range implies that, that they might need some services whether from a psychiatrist or a psychologist or social worker. Okay. And and basically what you're doing there is to find, I mean, we can all have moments where we are exhibiting things. Absolutely, yes. You know, but but the measure would be people who are consistently or overwhelmingly uh, experiencing some of those symptoms so so that you know you're not just getting people on a bad day, I I assume. Sure, like when we're all under quarantine, for example, where you know many of us have have a lot of symptoms of depression, but we might not be in the clinical range of depression. Right, right. Just because something's <laughs> depressing when we're depressed. Um, exactly. So okay. Yeah, so that seems to be a good uh, the the whole well-being thing. I'm uh, quite honestly, having having uh, worked in this field for 20 years, I am surprised that you didn't find more. Um, um, well-being issues for yes. women, and what what percentage of your study had had left the abuser? Do you know? Um, a, a large proportion, about ninety percent, had left the abuser. Okay. And again, and what know we know. Approximately... Sorry. Do you uh, do you know approximately how long they had been away from the abuser? You know, we didn't collect that very well. Um, and so it was kind of a mixture because we took women where they were at. So some of them had been, um, and also we didn't interview them when they were at a, in a women's shelter, for example. 
we didn't want them when they were in the crisis of, of just having left. So mm-hmm. our best guess is that most of them had left for at least about three to six months to five to ten years or so. So there was a range in yeah. there. Okay. But we were so surprised one, as well, um, especially well, since we had... Just, one would assume just normally that if, I mean, if you're in the stages of going through that crisis and going through the divorce or separation or the child custody hearing, that you would probably be at a higher level of all of these um, you know, mental states. So it would be interesting to be able to figure out you know, at, at what point, you know, I mean, for most women who were out for five years, was, were had they kind of settled down? Yes. That's a whole different study, but that, that's where my mind is going. I'm going. It would be interesting <laughs> to compare them. You know, you know what I'm saying? Um, it would be compare with them. Yeah, you know, as opposed to five years, ten years, uh, because I know oftentimes I've been surprised at how long reaching a new level of stability takes for women who go through these horrible experiences, and it right. and it really does. It takes some time. So, okay, that's a track. Sorry, I have a tendency to well, do can that. Well, I, I, I can respond to that a little bit, though, because the, the study that we're just, we're just waiting to receive word that it's been accepted in a journal, um, the longitudinal one where we did look at how women were doing over time. We factored in whether they were still receiving any kind of violence from their partner, and it was actually mm-hmm. not. They were, they were still doing better whether or not they were still had any kind of contact that might have been violent with their abusive partner. Wow. That's actually and they were and they were still doing okay. Yeah. yeah. These are very resilient women. Um but one more reason that we were surprised that there weren't mental health problems is uh, at least half of the women in our study were indigenous. And uh-huh. uh in uh one of the things we know about indigenous women and actually it was true for uh, many of the women in the study had histories of child sexual abuse. Um, I'm also looking to see some of the, uh, a large, at least 40% of them were sexually assaulted by their abusive partners. So they had experienced a lot of trauma in their lives. So we we were surprised that they were doing as well as they were on the mental health measures. Yes. Yes, I am too. I mean, I'm really, I'm I'm really encouraged by that. Um, yes. Quite honestly. Okay, so let's get more specifically uh, about your questions. We're, we've talked a lot about how you evaluated the mental health uh, status. Um, what about this protecting the kids? Protecting them from okay. what? And protecting <laughs> them how? Well, the, protecting them from the impact of the partner violence. Um, Kendra okay. Nixon, who, who's uh, been working more in this area, they, they had a subcommittee that looked at developing a scale of protective strategies, and uh, based based primarily on the literature on the sorts of things that uh, abused women did with their kids. So telling them that, you know, paying special attention to them, talking to them more often, trying to put the violence into perspective, helping them with a, with a safety plan perhaps. Um, other strategies could include uh, sending the kids away if, if she suspected that there might be an, an incident coming up, um, and in some cases actually sending them to live with other relatives. So there was quite a range. There were about 20 protective factors, and there was quite a range in there. But the idea yeah. is that uh, some of the protective factors are a little bit, people might not necessarily think about them as protective. So one of the ones that did differentiate the women 
who had kids taken into care versus those that didn't was that they actually stayed with the abusive partner. And that is, it's not based on their understanding of the research, but there is research to back it up that some abused women may be at more risk and their kids might be more risk of violence if they actually left. Well, so we yes, I mean, the, the the risk of lethality, you know, if if, if he's going to kill her, it's yes. nine times out of ten, it's when when she's leaving because that's he's right, having power and control wrested away from him. So that's you know, right. Well, I'm we know that because be, we've we know that because we've worked in the area for a while. But uh, if a mm-hmm. if a child protective services worker hadn't had training specific to intimate partner violence, they might misinterpret that. Oh, and we see that so often, the conflict between Child Protective Services or CPS and the courts. I mean, I know of several women who have been told by the courts, you must give the abusive spouse, the father, access to these children. And if you don't, then we're going to take these kids away from you because of custodial interference or uh, uh, what is that one, the, the uh, parental alienation, you know, which some, yes. well, that's a little bit out. Um, but the courts are saying you have to, you have to, or we'll take your kids away. And then CPS is saying, well, if you don't protect them from him, we will take your kids away. I, it, yes. Talk about rock and a hunt place. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's astonishing. So did you find that, well, I'm going to write that question down for later because I, want to, I don't want to take it okay. down there yet. <laughs> right. And, um, and to, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Uh-huh. I was just going to say, so we looked at protective factors, some of which might be um, a little bit confusing because another protective factor is actually to leave the partner. If, uh, if, if you have the wherewithal to do that and you think you'll be safe, that could be a protective factor as well. So we looked at a wide range of, of some of the things that moms, moms might do uh, to actually protect their kids, and with that being the major goal. Mm-hmm. Okay. And did you offer any resources uh, as part of your study? To the women? Um, yes. Basically, we, we, um, if, if they needed any at the time, I mean, we certainly checked that every time we met with them, but also mostly we got them from resources, <laughs> So we got them from mm-hmm. shelters where they still had uh, they still had um, relationships with the counselors, or we got them from counseling agencies. So most of them had the resources pretty firmly in place. But of course, if there was any any concern um, on the part of the research assistant that the woman was in danger, we would obviously uh, offer her some some assistance. Okay, so you uh, contacted these 648 women. You uh, found out that they, 90% of them had left their abusers, but we're yes. not quite sure how long ago. Um, and right. you asked specific questions to determine how they were doing, you know, mental health-wise, well-being-wise, and found out that they're doing pretty well. They're doing as well not as, as most people. Yep. On average, not, yeah. yes. On average, yes. I mean, I'm, you know, obviously it would vary. <laughs> and in looking at their mothering, you you also are finding out that, you know, they're not that different from no. people who are not going through these things. No. Um, did you look at the children themselves, or that was a whole different ballgame? We did not, no. And that would have mm-hmm. been a, a, another study that would be great. It's, you always find out after you've done one research study things that you wish you'd asked or wish you'd done, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the uh 
it's very difficult to do research studies with children, um, yes, just in terms of levels of consent. Know. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But you're right. Um, it would have been it would have been really important to do that for someone to do that, and there there certainly well, have been studies with kids. I always feel a really good study that I read. I, I leave it asking more questions than you would think. Usually, you you think of you know trainings or whatever as answering most of your questions, but for me, a really good study exposes more questions than we need to have answered. <laughs> so I'm with that, you. That's the way I'm with be. you on that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, okay. So please talk to me a little bit. This obviously was a quantitative study. It Tell was. me about well, how. Actually, we did. We, yes? did, we also did uh, 90 qualitative interviews with 90 of the Ooh. women, but uh, we uh. didn't use that for this particular study. We're, we're certainly uh, using it for other aspects, but uh, mm. there was so much quantitative yeah. data for this particular publication that we didn't include it. Yeah. And it's, it's um, too okay. bad in a way because you get, you get important context. For example, yeah. one of the things about this study is when we're talking about, about children being removed um, and the characteristics of the women mothers who had kids uh, removed or not, it's really easy to kind of blame the child welfare workers and, uh, you know, assume that they were making mistakes or that they weren't trained. And uh, I, I had gone through some of the interviews and, and came across some of the same women in the quantitative study and found out that certainly in some cases there's ample reason for the child protective services worker to take the kids into care. One mother, for example, um, had become very addicted to drugs and, uh, in fact, mentioned to her that she felt she had no choice but to give up her kids because she really couldn't manage on her own. So just to Mm -hmm. put that spin on it as well, it's not the intent of this article wasn't to necessarily blame Child Protective Services because it's, you know, it's very calm. These families live very complex lives. And the child protection worker has to make decisions based on a, lots and lots of material that doesn't necessarily get asked in a quantitative study. Did you find that here in the States especially, but I know it happens in Canada as well, um, we have abusers who manipulate the system. Um, they uh, make false accusations or they do all sorts of things. Did you find that any of the uh, removal of children uh, was likely to come from that kind of manipulation by litigants, if you will, um, or did you find that it was pretty much all for legitimate reasons? Well, we really couldn't tell because that wasn't the major focus of the study. Um, we could, mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't really look. That's why it was a secondary analysis. Is that if it if that was our prime reason for going in, we would have collected information like that. However, mm-hmm. um, we did ask the women a series of questions about whether their partners had lied about them, and one of the questions was, did they lie to child welfare authorities? And there were certainly women who were saying absolutely, or they, they were, that mm-hmm. was threatened as a strategy, uh, sometimes to keep them in the relationship, sometimes to keep them from asking for child support. So mm-hmm. the manipulation um, absolutely uh, was a factor, but we didn't specifically link it to uh, whether the kids were taken into care or not. Okay. Did you find any differences or did you um, uh, analyze at all 
uh, whether you you mentioned that uh, some of the um, a, a large percentage of the study um, pool was native. Um, residents, did you find whether there was any significant difference between ethnicities and the outcomes as far as either the mental health or the um, protection of the ch- children uh, issues? Right. Um, again, we'd kind of expected to, and again, this is a different publication, but uh, we'd looked at differences between the. Uh, we had we had a relatively small visible minority group. Um, about mm-hmm. 18%, and, and but the other half was equal divided between white and uh, we use the word in, indigenous in Canada, um, and so so and and had thought just again because of the indigenous history of colonization, uh, abuse in residential schools, we'd expected there to be more mental health difficulties uh, among the indigenous women, and we were really surprised to find out that there wasn't. Um, that, that again, on average, on average, the women were doing as well. The indigenous women were doing as well as the visible minority women, and the white women. So that again was kind of a surprise, but again reassuring. Um, but with respect to the uh, whether the whether the kids were taken into care or not, it 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 almost reached significance that uh, more of the mums were indigenous. But as a, as a as a as a professor who teaches statistics, I have to caution that uh, even though the probability level was at point zero six, which is just above what you would say was statistical significance, it didn't quite reach that. But I think that would be important to look at. What we did find was that the the women who had an indigenous partners uh, were more likely to have their kids taken into care. So again, wow. one wonders about. Racial, racist attitudes, potentially on the mm-hmm. part of child protection workers, and the yeah. other significant yeah. factor yeah. is that they were more likely to still be living with the abusive partner. And culturally, in in indigenous cultures, um, I think there's more, there's certainly more of a family push for that. I know in in, in most cultures. You know, the family wants the couple to stay together despite the abuse. But in Indigenous cultures, I think that's even more prominent. And so uh, we did find that the the moms whose kids were taken into care were more likely to still be with their abusive partners. And that might have been the factor. I don't know. You know, we, you, 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 yeah, you just never know until, the, again, another question. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the original study. Um, yes. w- with that, have you tra- when when did the study end? I know it was when it was published, but when did it end? When did you actually? It ended about two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Okay. It took a long time for the data to be. I mean, there was such a such mounds of data. It took a long time for them to be inputted. And available for um, for statistical comparisons to be made. So yeah, it's a tiny bit dated that way. And we do talk about the, that a little bit in this study because one might wonder whether child protection workers are better trained now and they're not intervening in the same way. Uh, but we actually found that in our locations that there was no particular differences in terms of training or the number of uh, kids taken into care from abusive mothers. 
Because again, it's, it's uh, about it, it's the largest proportion of referrals to child welfare in Canada is children who who have been exposed to intimate partner violence. It's about thirty to forty percent. So it takes up a huge amount of time, of the time and energy of what uh, child protection workers have to do. I'm assuming that you got some basic demographic information, obviously, you know, ethnicity, et cetera. But did you yes. also get any basic information about economic status? I'm wondering if that might have been a factor. Yes. Um, on average, these women were poor by Canadian standards, standards in the province. Um, I mean, many of them were not working um, and received very little. You know, they were on social wealth, social assistance. So poverty levels were definitely lower. It's hard to say because these characteristics are so intertwined. Like the ones that really, the ones that statistically stood out was that the moms were, um, as as children themselves, were more likely to have uh, been had had child welfare intervention and grew up in foster homes or were adopted or were in uh, group homes. And that was that was the most significant one. So they they'd, and again, it speaks to the history, the intergeneral, intergenerational transmission of abuse. That these, you know, here they are as adults, and in some ways they they, they might be looked at uh, more closely by CPS workers. But the other thing is that they were less educated. Um, they were more likely to have had child abuse histories. I mean, all of these things intertwine to make them more vulnerable. Um, even to intimate partner violence, if you think about it. Yes. Yes. It's, it's, and, uh, and the economics was, was was fit right in there. They they don't have uh, they're they're not as well educated. They can't get decent jobs. Some of them can't get jobs because they have young children. So. Um, yeah. Yeah. So they're yeah, interconnected. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That that whole. That whole thing uh, becomes such a um, I, don't, I don't even have the adjective for it, but it becomes such a uh, a, a, a cycle. Uh, you know, well, it's a, a self-fulfilling a prophecy. Yeah, it's almost a self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy. And I don't uh, child welfare isn't my major teaching area. It actually is Kendra's. My my area is more mental health. Um, but we we know that uh, we, it's not that this is new news that. Uh, that child protection workers are often seeing the the kids of the of the parents that they saw previously. Mm-hmm. They grow up and then they 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 become in the same rut of intimate partner violence, or they were abused or not. So one of the questions is, you know, is there something we could do preventatively? When you know the first time that a, that a that a mom works with a with a child protection services worker, is there something that could be done? to you know help her with her own kids to prevent them from the, from uh, becoming caught in that cycle hmm. you know i i grew up in poverty uh, we you know i hesitate to even say that because we we had food to eat and everything we we were not homeless but um my parents didn't even graduate junior high and you know the expectations were very low and i remember um, kind of a pivotal experience for me uh, in breaking that, breaking free from that, was uh, a high school teacher 
Yes. Who I went to a very tiny high school, 50 kids in my class, that kind of thing. Not not the kind of uh, environment where you had counselors and, and things. No. And I had a, a high school teacher who said to me once when I was in uh, ninth grade, and she said, where are you going to college? And I said, I'm not going wow. to college. I'm not going to college. And she said, you need to go to college. And that's it. She didn't say, this is how you do it. She didn't, you know, go saving me, you know, from, you know, I mean, she just planted that in my brain that you need mm-hmm. to, you need to. And I started thinking, well, maybe I can. Um, and I remember going home to see my mother um, that afternoon. And I said, mom, I'm going to go to college. And she looked at me and she said, well, who do you think you are, Mrs. Rich Bitch? Oh, no. Oh, dear. That you didn't listen to her. Yes, exactly. You know, and it was very, very hard. I mean, obviously, blah, 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 blah. Um, But it it was a a challenge. And with no one to actually show me an example or to say, this is how you do this, you know, it it was quite daunting, you know, to to do that. And I I think of the people uh, who are in these situations, and it is, you know, you talk about the self-fulfilling prophecy. It is. The expectations are almost, it's almost punitive that you would expect to be something better in your life. Um, And and so many of these people, so my, you know, you you talk about that story and my my heart reaches out. And, you know, I mean, I I feel the pangs of that because I've been there. You know, been there, yes. and and it's not uh, a picnic. In the sta- from the standpoint of the abuse, did you happen to study anything or or gather any data on the types of abuse? Are we talking primarily um, um, emotional or psychological abuse? Are we talking physical, actual physical abuse in many of these cases, yes. or was it a mixture? Was it conglomerate? Did you see any trends in the data that you collected? Um, but it was it was everything, and and the minute you find psych, uh, physical abuse, you know that there's going to be psychological abuse. Yeah. Um, the physical abuse, all of them were. We used a particular scale, and all of the you know physical harassment, emotional abuse were all within the clinical ranges. So the women were all what we would consider uh, seriously abused. There was a range, of course, but uh, that that was certainly one of the issues. Uh, you know oh. that they were that they had suffered themselves physical abuse, mm-hmm. and that's where some of the interviews are just so striking. Some of the uh, some of the the things that they endured from their partners were just horrendous. Mm. Well, and that's always the case, isn't it? Um, yeah. I think that some of the people who have never been involved in this type of uh, of scenario that they've not, if they've been lucky enough to not know of someone or know of a situation, yes. uh, you know, they're so naive about it. And, uh, you know, the whole, I always say that the, the, it seems like the three favorite questions are why doesn't she leave? Um, yes. You know, which, <laughs> well, it could kill her for one thing. Um, and then why doesn't she go to court? Like somehow or other courts are all about justice and taking care of the bad guy, which we all know we wish it were that way. And then the third thing is, why doesn't she just get over it? Here it is 10 years later, she's still talking about it. Well, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, (laughs) that's that's what trauma does to you. It's very difficult to to stop thinking about some of these events, especially without assistance, so... 
Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. And and as you pointed out, the the variety, the types of abuse that that occurs, uh, you know, it's so wow. You know, my I, it. How can you possibly know it all? You know, I mean, I think I know a lot about domestic violence, but what I do is, you know, somebody asks me because they know what I do. And if they want to talk to their personal situation, I just bring out the hotline number and say, these are the people you need to talk to because they have more expertise than I do. They have no more resources. They know more, um, you know, and, and like I said, I've, I've been dipping my toe in this field for 20 years and there's so little I know um, that it's intimidating. One of the things in your study um, that you talked about was the healing journey um, I mean, you know that's the title. What? How? Yeah. Tell me how that plays into your your study, this healing journey. Well, I I, uh, I think we adopted that somewhat optimistically when we started the study. I mean, the intent, the hope was to find that these women were on a trajectory where they were they were getting healing. And in fact, you know, we didn't really know until we completed the analysis, looking at the mental, and that's just looking at mental health stuff that they really were doing better over time. So, again, I don't, I wouldn't want to imply that they would think that they were healed, um, but they were certainly doing much better. They were more stable. Um, You know, they were more likely to be working. They were, uh, some of them were in new relationships that were really good. And, again, there's kind of a stereotype about abused women always going back to a different abusive man. And a lot of these women simply did not. They were in good relationships. They were doing well. Their kids were doing well. Mm-hmm. Do they so, feel I mean, that they have, no. Do they feel that they'd healed? Yeah. Well, what, I guess it depends on your definition of healed. Yeah, um, um, if, we if, didn't. We, ne- we never asked them that. I mean, that's a really that's a really good question. Uh, we did go back yeah. and ask them in some of the interviews what they thought of being in the study, and a number of them said they were just really glad that somebody was interested in their experiences. Um, so again, they, they weren't necessarily saying that they were healed, but it's very gratifying to have somebody, you know, to have someone bear witness to your experiences, Mm -hmm. and they had lots and lots of chances to talk about so many different aspects, including the courts, including the police, um, including child welfare. So I don't know that they would have come back, you know, over and over, over the three and a half years, if there hadn't been something in it for them. I mean, we gave them them a very small honorarium, but I think think they came back. It was set up so that uh, wherever possible, they always met with the same woman research assistant and so they mm-hmm. developed relationships with them if they were if they were doing the interview um, process with those 90 women it was their research assistant who did that so they really got to know that person kind of well so again whether or not that's healing it's it's certainly support i think and uh, some well, support is what these women need well and you know I not necessarily not Sorry, I, I I would think that it has more to do with validation because let's yes. face it, women who go through these experiences, they're very limited as to who they can yes. share them with. It's not like you go to a cocktail party and say, yeah, well, when I was this and da da da. But I mean, people are shocked. They abhor. They don't want anything. You, you know, I mean, oh, you forget no. it. 
for the most of their lives, right. these women who have experienced these things are uh, committed to silence about it, or they might make a very gentle allusion to something at some point. Right. But they learn to keep their mouths shut. Right. But here, and some, I mean, counseling can be helpful, but certainly uh, it's expensive, and you can't mm-hmm. really you can't really rely on your counselor having a good background in intimate partner violence. Exactly. So there's lots of ways that, you know, the, the pathways that many of us might take um, to to feel more validated simply weren't available for these women. And I, I really like the word, your use of the word validation. Mm. But this is my story. And, you know, I've made this, I don't have any, any data on this, but anecdotally, I, I think that, um, and, and it's my hope that at some point before I, I croak, I can do some, some studies on this because I I think that women who have been in domestic violence situations, intimate partner violence situations, whatever you want to call it, I think they prefer to not work for somebody else. I know a woman with a PhD who started house, started house cleaning rather than take a job because she did not wow. want to be an under anyone's thumb again. And I've right. seen that repeatedly. I would love to gather data on that because if that is the case, then we need to start helping women figure out how to do their own business, their own thing. Um, right. And most people don't have the skill to do that without a lot of training. So, uh, And I also noticed that um, I think a lot of women – well, enough, enough uh, <laughs> about what I think. We're, we're here to talk about your study. But I, I think there's a lot of anecdotal information out there that needs to be studied and, and, and you need to find out about it. And I think one of the things that I have seen with survivors is that they want to, they're compelled to tell their story, compelled to tell their story. Mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. believe that it is, in, it is in hope of helping another person, but I also oh, believe yes. that it yes. is. Yeah. That there is that requirement for validation. I want you to hear what happened to me. What I when, have you had children? Uh, yes, I have two boys. Okay. Um, after you have your first child, especially, it is such an overwhelming experience. Don't you feel compelled to, to yak about it to everybody until they just you know <laughs> ad nauseum? I mean, it's such an an overwhelming experience and, you know, from all angles, you know, physical, emotional, you know, and I know a lot of women, myself included, you know, for the first couple of years, that's all you wanted to do. So you ended up hanging around with other women who just had babies so that you could have permission to talk about it. Um, And the validation. Yep, and I think that to a large extent it's the same way with uh, survivors of right. uh, domestic violence abuse. You know, so I think that validation is a really huge and important thing that society denies survivors. Yeah. You can write that down. That's <laughs> <laughs> other for today. Um, <laughs> I, I worked with a, I worked with an agency in Calgary, uh, and we we published the results that offered peer support groups for abused women. And uh, the leaders of the group were were abused women, mo- mostly abused women themselves, who'd reached a, a a part in their own healing that they they wanted to give back. And it was a very nice, uh, e- very equal intervention. But again, telling the story is a huge part of it, and yes. uh, and doing it in group is very powerful. Because mm-hmm. you do, you know, hearing other women's stories, you can sometimes reflect on your own story a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And again, the validation. Yes. <laughs> we'll keep it's going with that. Play. 
Well, and you, it's kind of like being hit by a bus. I mean, you're not so much of the stuff you're living through, but you're not aware of it minutely. And, you know, um, again, going back to the analogy of giving birth, I mean, you know, who could, you're not, you don't know what's going on half the time. You're, you're experiencing it, but you don't know what's going on. And I was fortunate to have a birth assistant and, afterwards we got together and I went, Oh, that happened to me. I didn't know that happened to me. Oh, really? I did that. And I think we should have divorce doulas and domestic violence <laughs> doulas. <you know? laughs> People That's a great idea. To help part of it is, is understanding what happened. Oh, I was just yeah. smacked by a bus. Really? How did that happen? Did you see that? Um, and I think that that's part of it as well. I want to get back to a couple of questions because I'm looking at the clock going, ooh, this conversation is going quickly. Um, you mentioned the um, correlation, I don't know if that's the right word, between the mothers whose children were taken into CPS custody as well as their personal um, experiences with not only poverty but CPS's children, uh, lower income, less yeah. education, etc., when we started our conversation, you were very careful to say that there are so many stereotypes about the mental health of survivors, and you didn't yes. want to do anything about that. Uh, and when I'm reading that, I'm thinking, okay, so here we have this, you know, if we just look at that, we have the stereotype of, okay, so DV is only for poor women and educated people, not for people like us. I'm wondering right. if if there was any, if I, I guess it's making me wonder, can we do the same study just with wealthier, well-educated women? Are, do are they just able to handle this privately? And uh, how how does that work in your mind? Well, I I um, we we certainly had a mix in our study, although it's, I think it's sometimes harder to get. Um, wealthy women to agree to be in research studies because in some ways they have more more to protect. Um, and again, I mean, good question. Um, I, I, I think it's really important to stay, to stay away from stereotyping anyone, and I guess that's a risk with quantitative studies is that you, you could do that. I tend to think of it more descriptively and to think of it as these are things that, it, and, and in particular this study is looking at Child Protective Services, that these are things that Child Protective Services workers need to know about, and they need to sort of be able to analyze their own their own potential prejudices. I mean, we're talking all about uh, racial, in, institutionalized racism um, these days, and this is potentially another huge place for institutional um, racism in in Canada, it tends to be a bit more against Aboriginal people, Indigenous people. Um, we don't have as many black or, or other visible minorities, but it's certainly something that uh, other other authors have suggested that in our training we need to it needs to be much deeper than just this is what you do when you see this. We need a chance to reflect on how might I how might I just looking at my own beliefs, ones that I haven't even looked at before, how might I put a, a, you know, a family in, a mom and kids, um, at risk because of my own prejudices? And you know, we mm -hmm. need to look at that. We need to look at uh, just really good training, um, understanding 
intimate partner violence and how complex it is. And it's not always you don't you don't always know what you're getting. I think mm-hmm. uh, for some workers, it's kind of it's scary working with uh, with families where there's an intimate partner. And oftentimes, you know, the other thing that happens in child protective services is the dads disappear. And the moms, mm-hmm. even though they're not they're not abusing their own kids, they become the focus of of intervention. You know, they send them to groups and stuff when really the the issue is not her behavior but his behavior. So there's so much more that needs to be done um, in training. And, and I guess as a professional social work educator, I have to take on some of that myself. Um, is just be more aware that there's there's huge needs out there. And we've talked about it a lot. You mentioned, uh, I know the states, um, they've certainly talked about... Uh, reaching out to shelter workers and so that the two groups talk together, child protective workers and, and shelter workers, and how much they can learn from each other. Um, but we, having said that and having seen many, many presentations about that, I ha- we looked to see if it was actually being put into practice in the prairie provinces in Canada, and it doesn't seem to be. There's little dribs and drabs of people who are doing that, but basically it's your regular child welfare training um, that doesn't really have much to do with intimate partner violence. I think that our results with that across the states are varied, obviously, Um, and some localities, they're doing a pretty good job of it. Mm-hmm. Not just the, I think they're doing a little bit better job tying CPS in with uh, advocacy and, and um, uh, shelters. Yeah. I, the big, huge gap I see is between family courts and CPS. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, they may as well be speaking, you know, two different languages. Um, I and of course, caught in the middle, caught in the middle yeah. of that is the protective mother, you know, who's yeah. trying to protect her kids and. You know, um, and and I know uh, I have a, a friend who is an adult son of this kind of a situation, and he saw his mother um, going through this uh, divorce where custody was a battle issue with the abusive mm-hmm. father. And even as an adult, he says, well, it was okay. You know, I got through it okay, and, you know, mom did the best she could, but she just didn't trust me. She was just... You know, she made me go see him, and she made me do that. And I and I said, you do understand that she was probably threatened with losing mm-hmm. you totally mm-hmm. if she didn't. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, but it treated it infantilized me. That why didn't somebody? You know, she should have understood that I had my own mind. And I and I'm going, yeah, you're a grown up <laughs> guy, but you don't get it. You know, exactly. you just don't get it. And he yeah. will probably never get it because it's his mom. You know, I had I had a, a, a professor once when I was working on my master's who. Uh, you know, in psychology classes where you have to do the whole, you know, self-analysis, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, great. And, yeah, which I find very tedious and invasive, and I didn't like it one bit, and I wrote one up, and I, it, if I'd found it that horrible and, and invasive, why didn't I just make something up? And yet I didn't. I put it all out there. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, in retrospect, I was thinking, why? Because it, it really upset me. I felt that it was none of their business, you know. But I did that, and afterwards the professor came to me and she said, do your children know this about you? And I right. said, I know some of it. And she said, you really need to tell them. You really need to share this with them. And she said, my mother passed away, and I didn't know her, and I will never know her. And I said, I have news for you. You will never know your mother because 
everything that you see of that human being is through your, this is my mother, lenses. It's filtered. Right. So even if she tells you everything, you're, it's not going to have meaning for you. So give yourself a break. <laughs> right. You know? She could have sold her guts. She could have asked all the right questions, and you still would not know her because she's your mother, you know. Um, listen, I'm looking at the time. Gosh, gosh, gosh. What are the implications of your study? I mean, the thing that I'm putting down on my notes here is I, you know, the, the coordination between CPS training and the, the, the family courts. I mean, clearly this is, makes a case for that. And yet I'm, there's so much more. What do you see as the implications of your study and ideas for fu- future study that you have planned? Well, we, uh, as I mentioned before, I think we were we were largely focusing on education and coordination um, with uh, ch- CPS workers and the need to do more of that, but also the need, you know, as a professor myself, the need for us to do more and uh, and to do it in a really respectful way because I don't know that, uh, you know, you don't want to go around simply blaming CPS workers or their training. I mean, it's, as a social work educator, we have some... <laughs> You know, just a quick story. Um, in my faculty, um, I was trying to get a, a, a course on intimate partner violence about 15 years ago, and uh, we had a child welfare specialty group, and they basically said, no, we don't need one. And it wasn't <laughs> until my my dean, a bunch of students, that it, a bunch of students went to the dean and said, we need a course in this, that we actually got my course up and running, and it's it's still going Still, so there's, there's, you know, there's, there's not necessarily, there's some territoriality around this, and there, yes. there will be about training as well. But we need to educate, and then we also need to see training as an ongoing issue. It doesn't stop once you get your degree. It wasn't st- doesn't stop once you get out the door. Um, Kendra, mm-hmm. Kendra Nixon, my co-author, is working on a study uh, in conjunction with the child welfare um, agencies in Manitoba. And looking at it, there's a, a, I'm forgetting the name of the scale, but there's scales around looking looking at readiness to deal with intimate partner violence. And she has developed one specifically for child protective services workers. So we're going mm-hmm. to go and use that scale and find out how those workers are doing. And I think that will come out with some uh, pretty distinct recommendations. I mean, maybe they are prepared. That, that would be good to know. Mm-hmm. And if they're not, we'll be able to tell what more specifically um, they need to know, what would be helpful to them. So there is some ongoing work that's uh, that's coming out of this. Yeah. What about future studies? Um, well, I'm retired, and so I'm not in a position where I'm actually going to be uh, doing them myself. But as I said, I, I'm I'm collaborating with other with other people around some of these. I think, you know, it, it was it was my hope. Uh, you mentioned, is anybody talking to the kids? And it was my hope to do a qualitative study with with kids who've, whose parents um, have been involved, whose moms were abused by their partners, and to get their views of mm-hmm. it. And since I never got the funding to get that going, I've noticed that other people have done that. But I think we really do need to listen to the kids I was involved doing some groups for very young kids who've been exposed to intimate partner violence, and those are great, but not all communities have them. And so uh, I think it's important to 
to, uh, to, to keep on talking about them as, as useful because, again, um, it may be the one way to influence what happens to these kids when they grow up, you know, possibly finding a mentor and group process, just even just simply normalizing what happened to them as not unique, that it does happen to other kids as well, and that mm-hmm. there's hope. Yeah. Exactly. That, and that, that that can be a part of your life, but it doesn't have to be your life. Exactly, yes. Yeah. You know, I want to just throw in one other thing, because as we've been talking, we, we talked about the definition of healed. What does that mean? And <laughs> right. I think when, we, when we're talking physical, we think healed means everything's back to the way it was. Maybe there's a little right. scar, but everything's back to the way it was. It doesn't work that way with these kinds of things, does it? And so oh, I just I just jotted down healed, learning to manage, function, and grow accustomed to what happened. Yeah. That's very nice. That, that, would be, that would be my definition of healed under you know, these kinds of situations. Yeah, so it's like people expect you to. If people expect you to to stop grieving a lo- at the death of a loved one, like a spouse, and you don't, you don't ever give up grieving them, but your relationship around them changes, and hopefully becomes less uh, less sad and uh, depressive. Exactly, and I know that uh, you know Canada is not that different different from the states here, but. We live in a in a culture in a society that wants to be very caring and wants to be very loving, but they put a very very brief time span on that. Um, a, a friend who was widowed, a, a friend who was widowed after forty five years. Everybody's very sympathetic for the first three four months, and then she starts getting. You've got to get over this. You've got to move on. Exactly. Well, you know what? It might take her years to move on. She might. What do you mean by move? I, you know, we we put a time limit on our tolerance yes. and caring, I think. And, uh, you know, we really shouldn't do that. No, I Dr. couldn't agree Kelly, with you more. It has been such a pleasure uh, talking with you, and I really appreciate your research. And, um, gosh, I hope that, you know, as you do more exploration, I, I hope that you'll keep us in mind and come on the show and talk more as we learn more. Oh, I'd more. love to. I, that would be great. I just really just really enjoyed this conversation and um i you know it, it, it's so helpful so helpful so thank you and please keep me in mind for future uh, studies that you do or uh, information that you run across and thank you for listening to three women three ways join us again next week okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.